You're listening to the Autism Weekly Podcast. Each week, we share community voices and bring light to stories that increase awareness, acceptance, equity, access, and inclusion. If you haven't already, subscribe to join the Autism Weekly family. I'm your host, Jeff Skibitsky. This week, we welcome Dr. Ditu Rajaraman to the podcast to talk about compassionate care in the ABA field. This is a crucial ABA therapy subject because ABA therapy is a type of care and caring is based on compassion. We know compassion can foster trust, leading to better communication between a patient and their provider, improve care quality. And for 14 years, Dr. Rajaraman has taught, interacted with, and learned from children and adolescents of all abilities. He joined the faculty at UMBC after earning his doctorate in BA, behavior analysis from Western New England University. He now serves as a mentor to psychology students at the undergraduate and graduate levels and has published research in the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis, Behavior Analysis and Practice, and Autism. Ditu is also currently one of the faculty and staff at uh, the Vanderbilt University. And Ditu, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm very thrilled to be here. It's a beautiful day. Uh, great day to talk about compassionate care. I, I think every day should be a great day to talk about compassionate <laughs> care. It's kind of a, a lightning subject when you actually think about what's going on in the world around us. But it's also a subject that had not really filtered through our services until, until recently. I mean, it's been there. We've talked about it. We know about it. But we've never really applied our energy to make sure it's there all the time. So what how did you get to thinking about integrating compassionate care into the work that that you do? Yeah, I think that um, you know compassionate care, as as I think we're talking about it, and uh, I'm sure later on we'll go into the nitty gritty of of what what it means. But um, most people, I think, have a have a, a visual or a sense of what compassionate care is. And for me, I, I, it really came up as part of the privilege of of working in different settings and uh, applying behavior analysis to you know different demographics of individuals across different settings. So you know, I, I got my start. I cut my teeth at, at a residential school for children with, with some pretty severe needs and children who engage in in very dangerous, high rate, high intensity behaviors. And that, uh, you know, it was a residential program. So the students were were living at the school and they were doing that quite literally because they couldn't, uh, they were too, their behavior was too dangerous for them to live at home. And that's where I learned uh, about the principles of behavior analysis, the, the power of, you know, uh, that the environment has on our behavior. And I also learned a, a set of procedures and techniques that we used to, to not only well, to tr in attempts to address behavior, but often to manage behavioral episodes when they got out of control. So for me, it was I never disentangled um, my learning of the theory and the principles of behavior analysis with some of the practical things that we were doing, things like physical management tactics, restraints, seclusions, and procedures like that. Um, that isn't to say that my work at that residential school was not compassionate. But once I moved to a setting where I didn't have those resources, the personnel and, and the, the team members, where we could respond to dangerous behavioral episodes in ways that you know relied on physical management tactics, that was, was step number one in, in revealing that alternative methods were necessary. And it's sort of, you know, when you're in a setting where you can't do the things that you were trained to do or when you can't do uh, what you understand to be best practice, that you really need to unpeel the banana and, and kind of ask, um, 
if if we're in a setting where we could never engage in, in procedures like restraint, for example, how do we go about treating individuals uh, and and meaningfully incorporating them into therapy in a way that involves, you know, their assent and in a way that kind of respects their agency and autonomy? So I I think I stumbled upon it by by put it by being in situations where I was providing care, and and it you know was it was thrust upon me to 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 come up with a more kind of compassionate way. Yeah, I mean, and and compassion just in general is the idea of having empathy, empathy, and being able to kind of put yourself in somebody else's position and to be able to look at what's humanizing through the process. I remember when, I mean, 20 years ago, when I was going through kind of learning each of these models of care and and trying to be able to implement them into practice as a supervisor is that the, I remember the old low boss videos and Mm -hmm. the hospitalized setting, adult, um, going through some intense, intense behaviors and extinction being used as a primary principle, which is, I mean, it's trying not to reinforce the behavior, but the idea of compassion and empathy during the research and the lab science days of proving some of these behavioral techniques wasn't really there. So as much, I mean, when you think about the the evolving nature of compassionate care, from the time where we are standing up the science to where we are now, what does that mean? Like, how is our thought process needing to change? And I guess that goes with defining what compassionate care is in ABA. Yeah, I think so. It is a great question. It's a big question. So we'll try to tackle it in some parts. Um, I gave a talk on compassionate care a few months ago, and I did something that I hadn't done before, which was I Googled the word compassion to see what it means. And it has these two important components. You you tapped into one of them. Empathy is a, is a critical component of compassion, um, sharing in the emotional experience or in the lived experiences of others. The second one I think is the one that we tend to associate more with compassion, which is acting in a way to alleviate other people's suffering or other people's distress. And if you just take that half of the definition, acting in a way to alleviate other people's distress, Um, As far back as like the founding of modern psychology, uh, psychology was thought of as a compassionate endeavor. You know, Freud and his contemporaries said, now that we're beginning to understand things about the psyche or about how the mind works, we should use that to help alleviate human suffering. It's it's like in the initial textbooks, in the initial treatises. And certainly when we were taking principles from the basic behavior analytic laboratory, understanding how environments and principles of things like reinforcement, punishment, and extinction, how those things impacted the behavior of of many types of organisms, including humans, Uh, the the kind of original gangsters of applied behavior analysis, they they set out to say, well, we are understanding these principles, we should use them to help alleviate human behavioral problems or, or, or human distress. So at its core, applied behavior analysis is a compassionate endeavor. I believe that. I give credit to the to the kind of the founding members of the field who who kind of said that we should be addressing uh, behavioral problems that are of societal relevance and of relevance to those who we serve. So that's the compassion piece. But that empathy piece maybe wasn't always there. And I think that that's that is where I feel as though we've evolved in many ways. Um, when we were first translating principles from that basic animal laboratory to, to human application, we weren't necessarily thinking about the 
the physical lived and perceived experience of the ABA procedures that our, that our clients uh, were, were receiving. And I think that's where we have sometimes procedures that are tied to the principles, the behavioral principles, um, but that kind of maybe don't look too pretty to watch and perhaps don't feel very good to, to experience. So the modern contemporary evolution, I think, takes into account that, yes, procedures will be efficacious. They will work and they will reduce behavioral problems when you rely on things like extinction and punishment. But that may not be the way that we want other people to be treated. It may not be the way that we would want ourselves to be treated, our kids to be treated. And uh, the, the, I think the, content, the past decade or more has been really taking a look in the mirror um, and, and uh, kind of doing a self-assessment. In what ways have our own procedures contributed to, to harm? And in what ways can we kind of develop and refine procedures that are more aligned with this empathetic uh, compassionate approach. And the, the last thing I'll say about that is major kudos goes to our neurodivergent allies and members of the field and professionals and advocates who have brought to light, given voice to those who in, in some ways have not had a voice in this conversation for very long. Um, individuals, uh, autistic members of the community who have said, I have ex I experienced ABA firsthand. Let me just t detail what that experience felt like for me. Uh, that was that was a, a big paradigm shift that was very transformative in my own practice um, and in my and in in the way I kind of interacted with individuals ever since. No, and and the way that you were kind of walking through almost the historic timeline of a lot of these things and how it actually has come from different domains of psychology and how it kind of is rooted as we've grown, we've learned, and we're applying differently. It also puts into context that you know it takes time. I mean, this isn't something that we can immediately turn the page on because there's so much to the science that we are doing that if we automatically expect that everybody's going to be well-trained enough to do things correctly overnight and change their philosophy, I think that that might be an assumption that we couldn't live up to. It doesn't mean that we need to not start making those changes, but I think that it's something that, you know, having some patience through the process is equally important. Mm -hmm. um, so how do you kind of put into, into that context of, you know, all of the techniques that we've been trained on for so long are rooted in very core implementable science that is almost piece by piece written out for us as far as this is exactly how you do the procedure. And we're working in a field that requires some creativity at times, individualization at times. So where is that, where's the training mismatch? Where do we start to be able to create opportunities for people to learn how to be creative within our field yet still follow principles? I, it's a, it's a, another really terrific and big question. Uh, one for which I, I could only hope to have like a, a fraction of an answer. Um, I think that you, the, when you bring up training, like where, where can we kind of pivot our training so that we are taught that individualization and creativity from the front end? Uh, that makes me think of the fact that um, evolution is ongoing, but historically and for a very long time, we have worshipped at the altar of a particular type of evidence when it comes to the development of the procedures that we use. And that evidence has been looking at data points on a graph that show um, without a shred of doubt that this procedure led to this reduction in, in challenging behavior, uh, for example. And despite the fact that that graph is, uh, represents highly valid data, it represents truth, 
And, you know, if all the journals were to be burned down in a thousand years from now, we'd likely find the same effect when we did that same procedure. That's the beautiful thing about science is we're, we're kind of discovering facts about nature. However, the lens with which us humans have looked at science has been somewhat narrow and myopic in, in our past. And I think that's that's where we could potentially shift things. So what I'm what I mean by that is that we have throughout history looked at the fact that certain procedures have decreased challenging behavior and we've said well this works and this will work if you try it. But when we talk about what works, we're only referring to the particular behavior that we targeted for reduction and we only look at the fact that we, we've only graphed that particular response or that type of behavior uh, on our graphs. We're not paying attention to other elements of that therapeutic experience. We're not we haven't historically paid any attention to the extent to which children are volunteering to participate in this therapeutic experience, the extent to which children are signing off and saying, hey, this is the way I like to, I'd like to be treated. We, we only recently have started to, to kind of measure some of those secondary behaviors. Are they engaging with you in therapy? Are they doing so reluctantly? Are they doing so appropriately? Are they actually engaging in other types of challenging behavior to try to get out of these situations? So, um, Kind of similar to what I said earlier, like when you put yourself in a situation where you have a, a different starting point, like a, like I, a, the earlier example is if I'm in a new setting where I can never implement restraint, it's going to change the way I approach every single situation. And if our trainees, if, if new people coming into the profession or into any human service field come to the field and their starting point is a place of compassion, their starting point is a place of I will never implement a procedure without gaining proper assent or at least making every attempt to, to describe to you what's going to happen and inviting you to participate rather than coercing you into that participation. See, I see a lot of room for change and growth there. Uh, I, I, I know that it's it's a recent change that's happened because I was in graduate school uh, less than a decade ago, and it was a very rare paper where we're reading about things like social validity or, or the ethics of our approaches. It was much more so about our training needs to be about understanding the science and how we interpret data. So I know that that's changing because I've teach I've, I've been teaching recently and we're, we, our training programs are emphasizing elements of empathy, compassion on the front end. So that's where I see a lot of optimism about kind of the future of the field. I, I mean, I share that optimism. I, I've seen that growth and, and that's why I say it's stepping stones to get there. Historically, I think that it's all been about, you know, what are the long term effects of care and did we did we. I don't know, chip away at those developmental milestones? Did we increase skill sets that were determined by clinicians at that time? The the question that I would I would kind of pose through this process is that it sounds like what you're telling us is that you should be looking at the short-term experience as well as the long-term gains and who's defining those long-term gains. The tools to get there and assess that on a regular basis are ones that I don't know every clinician really knows how to be able to evaluate that on a regular basis. Where would you be saying that we should be looking as a field? I mean, are they quality of life service? I, I don't know. I don't know what you would be recommending to make sure that we have that thought in our in our mind as mm -hmm. we're making clinical decisions. Sure. I think the very first place to look is directly at at our clients, um, because I can speak to personal experiences of of putting procedures in place watching clients appear distressed or not, you know not like that I did this thing to them but believing deeply and and connecting to the science that well this is the right thing for this person at this moment in time 
fighting this battle, that you know, not not withholding this reinforcer or de or, de or delivering this particular consequence is the right thing for them, despite the fact that they don't love it, that their parents who may or may not be watching don't love it. And uh, so, so the first place to look it, and and to reflect, I think, to engage in self-reflection is if my clients engaging in behaviors indicative of avoidance, you know, withdrawal. First of all, maybe I should allow them to withdraw and I should regroup, re-examine what I'm doing. Second of all, I should take it as data that the situation that we've created is not a, a preferred one. And so I don't think that we necessarily need a survey to teach us th that children are avoiding the, the programs that we're designing for them. I, a, a minute ago, I mentioned parents. I think that that's another excellent source of information. It's, it's all historical context and, and uh, nobody's to blame here, but we developed a lot of our early ABA procedures in settings like hospitals and residential programs where the, the children and adolescents that we were serving were, were uh, literally separated from their parents, sometimes because they needed to be uh, to, to receive that intensity of care. But, but what that led to was a proliferation of services wherein parents weren't necessarily consulted in the development of the services or weren't really asked, hey, uh, how does this make you feel? So I think that, uh, again, before you administer a survey and say, thank you very much, but we'll check in with you at the end of services, I say invite parents in, try to create a culture where even if it's your first day on the job that you are performing ABA with a parent uh, there uh, uh, you know, with you. And I don't mean to say that it's, it's that we should be babysat or we should have, uh, you know, we, the, this helicopter situation. It's that we should share in this therapeutic experience together and that our job as RBTs, as BCBAs, and as, as human service professionals should be to check in and say, hey, is this a way that you'd like for me to treat your child? Here, do, do we have agreed goal? We have a shared goal here and we have a couple of approaches to that, to achieving that goal. You tell me which one you think you'd like um, best. Those are the so informal uh, answers that probably aren't very psychometrically <laughs> valid. Um, however, I, I, you know, we, we have other, for students for whom we, we have a difficulty uh, understanding those kinds of indicators, we have some, some great assessments within the ABA toolkit, things like concurrent chains analyses, uh, things like preference assessments, where we can be a little bit more systematic in how we present options to our learners, our individuals, and, and, and a little bit more systematic in understanding the nature of what they're preferring versus what they're avoiding. And, and two of those uh, kind of perspectives that you shared, one with the family involvement, it's, it's interesting to me right now that legislatively, there's there's finally bills coming out in different states starting to require within behavioral health treatment that the family not only consents, but understands the treatment yeah. procedures before they go on, which it sounds like, you know, why wouldn't that be part of what's historically been in place through legislation for any sort of treatment? But it's it's trickling in and that's where the baby steps come. But even on the, the side of trying to make sure we're using our tools it's not using those as a way for coercion, but using them as a way of understanding and mm -hmm. looking at it through the perspective of, okay, so what do I learn about what I need to do in my treatment modality and the way that I'm delivering care versus what do I need to do to utilize this to make the child do what I'm asking them to do? And it's it's a mindset thing that- I think it's a mindset use. thing. Even the it, just just to go uh, one more thing about kind of the parents, I do think it's a mindset thing. When in some of my early experiences, 
We feared that parents might come and observe because we were worried about what they might say. We feared that they that like they if they saw what we were doing to their kids, that they wouldn't like it or that they wouldn't understand it. But it also created a bit of an oppositional relationship between the therapist and the parent um, as the baseline, as the mindset. So I think the shift to being a little bit more collaborative and inviting them from the get-go can also help change your mindset and, and protect against uh, a future kind of maltreatment or, or doing things that might ultimately result in conflict. Uh, which I which I feel very strongly about in terms of uh, compassionate care involves bringing in caregivers as well as client uh, from the get go and throughout. Well, I'm I'm going to allow you a brief tangent right now because I've heard you speak on televisibility before, and I think it's something that can be echoed right now as far as the importance of that in our care models. And may, maybe I can just give you a small little platform just to kind of refresh us on you know what televisibility is why it's important and why it is going to sustain our practice over time as we continue to be able to develop new new skills, new tools. Great, yeah, it's, it's piggybacking off of what we were kind of just talking about, but the notion of uh, a televisibility is the notion that our, our practice, that we should behave as though we are constantly being uh, broadcast on the evening news. Um, it, it's something that, again, will shift your mindset. And if you even enter work tomorrow thinking if there were a camera here, would I want them to see the way that I'm interacting with these children or, or my clients, that it might change uh, a couple things about, about your approach. Um, for too long, we kept it siloed. We, 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 we stood behind an observation mirror. We, we kind of kept everything a little bit uh, cagey and, and sneaky, even in, in what we were about to do to the clients that, that we worked with. So this concept of televisibility as a, as a guiding value, I think, and as a guidepost for how to approach care is, is one that will surely uh, or very likely result in, um, in a, probably a more compassionate approach to care. Uh, again, it, it bears repeating that uh, the fact that we are hearing voices from individuals who've experienced ABA and who uh, many times over are, are are making a compelling case that it is not only was that what it was harmful, but it's contributing to ongoing trauma, uh, that ABA is abusive. If you think about it, it the, 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 the evening news story that could have happened in the 70s and 80s that could have prevented this, um, those stories were too few and far in between. There were a handful of newspaper articles about uh, children uh, dying in restraint procedures, and those things did facilitate and foster a lot of change at the level of policy making. So it's this notion that there's a, there's a often a, a cause and effect between big time stories, between uh, public displays of of procedures and, and things like that, and how we how we change our, our procedures on a macro level moving forward. So uh, it's a I think it's great advice. Well, the, the last thing I'll say, given that ABA is under a lot of scrutiny right now, and, and I think rightfully so, ABA is, is under a microscope when new parents who are coming in thinking about ABA services, if they go and Google ABA, they're probably more likely to find negative press than they are positive press. Each individual member of our field has a responsibility and the opportunity to shift that culture by engaging it, by being guided by televisibility, I think as a, as a core core value. It's a it's a great kind of ethos to live by. There is is to kind of say anything that I'm doing 
is that if I'm ashamed of what I'm doing, that others are seeing what I'm doing, then there might be something wrong with it. And, and I think that there is a level of accountability, professional to professional, to be able to kind of hold each other to that level of care. Because ABA as a as a practice, as a treatment modality, is a wonderful resource to have. ABA provided inadequately or inappropriately or with the wrong context behind it can, like you said, be harmful. So we need to hold each other accountable through the process. But how how would you suggest that we, in kind of broad strokes, start putting compassionate care into practice? Are there specific things that you could point to? In broad strokes, yeah, I know that you had uh, um, my colleague Pablo Juarez on the podcast a little while ago, and Pablo spoke about kind of uh, uh, something called community-informed practice, and I see it as a really great vehicle for ensuring that compassionate care can be embedded into into your practice, and it's uh, aligned with this concept of televisability is the notion of putting our behavior out there putting our plans out there and, and setting up a schedule so that we do so on a semi-regular basis. Every three months or so, meet with the parents of the of the children that you're serving. Or uh, if you can do what Pablo has been successful in doing and, and, and Pablo and his, his colleagues is, is develop a community, an advisory community of trusted professionals, uh, of, of trusted individuals, individuals that uh, represent those who we purport to serve. In other words, Pablo cre uh, helped co-develop an autistic advisory committee um, at Vanderbilt University Medical Center with the plan, with an impetus for us to regularly check in and say, these are the procedures that we plan to implement with, with, with such and such kind of population or in this setting. Um, can you guide us in the way of, of how you, how, how does that, how do you perceive these procedures and what suggestions do you have? Um, I think that that's a, a really, again, another good protective factor and a, and a, and a specific strategy that organizations can, can undertake to start engaging in compassionate practice. That's the broad answer. On the individual answer, you, you know, it does start with kind of consuming some content. We're, we're learning in some of our work in, in public schools that it's one thing to tell, to, to, to encourage folks to try different procedures when you're there, when you're able to consult, and when you're when you're when you're able to provide supervision, it's another thing entirely to change the culture of you know of challenging behavior is bad. They're doing it because they're aggressive, and thinking instead of challenging behavior is communicating some type of distress. And if I frame, you know, if I frame a child's challenging behavior as as communication or as uh, dysregulation, then my approach to that is not necessarily to teach in the moment to say, well, you can't get away with it this time, but instead to to pause, to empathize, to, to to do whatever I can to make that distress go away and then be planful about how I might address those bigger challenges uh, in, in future intervention planning. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And especially on the BCBA level, the clinician level for, for them to be able to kind of compartmentalize a lot of that to realize that, you know, a failure is a learning opportunity. The failure is not on the, the behalf of the recipient of the care. The failure oh. might be just on, on the treatment plan itself. It's not working and it's not something I should be ashamed of. It's something I learned from and I adapt. But then I think about the, the implementer of the care. It's oftentimes a direct care personnel. And for the behavior technician, as they're going through it, it's the mindset. They're going into a very tough job. I've done it. Um, I, I would imagine that you've probably experienced that role during your life as well, 
where it is, it's a very difficult job at times is that you don't always see the progress. Sometimes mm -hmm. it's lonely. Sometimes there's absence of a variety of people that are there to help support you immediately. Um, and it's that mindset that you go in of, you know, being optimistic, having that kind of glass half full mentality, realizing that there's no such thing as perfection in care. Um, and having that sympathy and empathy for the person that you're working with and that you're not you're not trying to change, you're working with them on their goals through that process, which takes time. So the same patience that one might give themselves, it's so important to trickle that down and put it into the same perspective of, I need to give that same leeway, that same flexibility, that same understanding to whoever it is that I'm working with throughout that process. Do you have advice for, for clinicians at that level to say, you know, when this isn't happening for me, who do I turn to? Where do I yeah. go? How do I learn? I will, I certainly would love to talk about who, who I turn to, but I actually have some actionable thoughts about even in those interactions themselves. If you're, if you're finding that you you keep visiting a client's house and you just you you show up dreading it because you know it's not going to go well or you're just worried about the slow progress. I, I I the optimism can only take you so far. But what what I think can be really helpful is uh this might require chatting with your supervisors or making sure the team's on board. But if you can approach care from the perspective of my first job is to at all costs to make this learner love spending time with me or make this learner love the setting that we're in. Again, it will change a hundred things about what you might typically do. Because if you enter a new job, you enter a new institution, there are gonna be rules and guidelines in place. That's how I met so many of my first few clients was I opened the binder that said, this is their behavior intervention plan. When they do this, don't respond to them. Only, only allow them to say mom's house three times before you say that's all done. And we were so beholden by those rules. And, and so we had to try to create these positive relationships while navigating these kind of sticky rules. And what we're finding, and this is something that uh, that we have some research behind and we have some ongoing research studies to kind of demonstrate this, that if you can just flip the script and say, my first job is to make this place a place where you feel happy, relaxed, uh, engaged with positive reinforcers and where you and I have a positive therapeutic relationship at all costs, no matter what those other rules are, barring some emergency expect or, you know, like some 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 hard rules that that might that are for safety reasons. Uh, I think that that's a way to take this this doldrum, this this dread that you've been feeling for months and flip it on its head within a week. Uh, and we're seeing that time and time again. So that is a, a really wonderful, actionable reset. You're resetting the relationship. You're allowing the child to trust that you're not there to take their toys away, that you're not there to only instruct. And from there, this is what I'm really excited about getting some data on. From the point where you repaired the relationship, you built trust, it seems very likely that children will be more willing to engage in instructional time, in therapeutic time, and in adult-directed activity, um, even without kind of focused teaching. So the actionable advice is to, 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 to change some of the procedures so that you're focusing primarily on how can I remove the evocative stimuli, the things that are likely to trigger challenging behavior, and how can I just focus on creating a really, really positive relationship? That does segue nicely to, to your specific question, Jeff, which is like, who can I turn to? That that needs to be a team decision. 
that's not something if an RBT, for example, were to go into the home and start doing this while all other members of the team are behaving with different rules, there's going to be conflict there. There's going to be, you know, uh, pe people are going to disagree and then there's going to be drama. We know I love drama, but I don't like that kind of professional drama. Um, so so making sure that an entire team is on, on board with those procedures maybe starts with going to your direct supervisor. Um, but another place, you know, where, where folks can go is uh, is online. There, there are some wonderful verbal communities on, on Facebook um, that you could kind of search in social media spheres for compassionate care, compassionate ABA. You could find dozens of Instagram handles. And it's a really great starting point to, to start consuming some of the content that might affirm you know, what you're feeling. If you're like, I feel as though my practice could be a little bit more compassionate, but I don't know how to get there. You might find some content there, but more importantly, you might connect with other professionals who are going through similar struggles, who who maybe if you feel like you're on an island, you might be able to connect with people who are also on an island. Um, one example of that is we have this Facebook group called the PFA and SBT community. Uh, it stands for Practical Functional Assessment and Skill-Based Treatment, which is a particular set of assessment and treatment procedures for addressing challenging behaviors. Um, but this Facebook group developed quite organically. There were folks out in the UK that were like, we'd love to implement this, but we'd like to have a, a community to chat through with it. And that was but three or four years ago. And that Facebook group now has, all, I think, close to 20,000 members with many daily active users. And these are individuals who, I, I'm, I'm not kidding, it's one of the most positive, affirming places I've, I've ever been, professionally and personally. And so I, I actually see it as a pretty transformative resource in people's practice to go to those places um, and to, to check in with, with like-minded colleagues to see how they have transformed or transitioned their practice to learn from their history and their experience, and then also to be able to share some of your setbacks at times and accomplishments. I, I think that's what makes a professional community. And I, you're, you're humble about a lot of the work that you've been doing, but this is something that you've been putting effort and time and research into. And research is so valuable for our field because you could take a concept, but at least for a lot of the clinicians as they're going through is that they want to know before they're applying it, that it has, that, it, that, that it's got efficacy, that it's worked somewhere else before I'm going to apply it to any of my uh, clients. So where can people learn about the work that, that you're doing and who are the other influential colleagues that, that you would say, hey, you know what, follow this person. They, they know it, they, they, they're guiding a lot of the questions that we need to answer in this, in this venue. Oh, wow. That is a, a fantastic question because I get to brag about having uh, baller friends uh, and influencers. But the, 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 uh, I'll start again by, by pivoting to that Facebook group because a lot of these members are, 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 are members of that group um, and, and not just professionals who are doing uh, like research at academic institutions, but individuals who are doing field research and participatory action research, um, uh, autistic BCBAs who are kind of translating their lived experiences to their practice and disseminating some of those things. Um, some, some names that come to mind are, are my mentor, Dr. Greg Hanley really initially devised those 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 functional assessment and skill-based treatment procedures and and I think initiated a cultural and paradigm shift toward a more compassionate approach. Um, Dr. Another mentor of mine, Dr. Jen Austin, uh, she's she's been leading a lot of work in terms of 
integrating trauma-informed care with with ABA um, and in applying behavior analysis to to some of the non-traditional populations, um, folks in in the foster care system, folks in the juvenile justice system, and uh, all of those things. Jeff, like my uh, initial message today, applying behavior analysis in those different settings teaches us to look in the mirror and say, whoa, we need to change a little bit about the ways that we practice. Some of what I might do in a clinic um, in Middle Tennessee is very different from what I might do in the foster care system uh, out, out east or something like that. Um, and then a lot of my, my contemporary colleagues, Dr. Holly Gover, um, she has been doing some tremendous work in uh, applying these more compassionate approaches to feeding interventions, uh, which is another uh, we could we could spend a whole other podcast. Well, actually, Dr. Gover might be great a great guest for that, uh, going down that rabbit hole. But that's another beautiful example of how we developed procedures for folks with really significant uh, feeding issues um, and and comorbidity with developmental disabilities where the risk was so high that it warranted some highly intrusive restrictive procedures. And we didn't really stop to ask, well, can we come up with alternative methods that might be more compassionate? Maybe not to supplant and replace the the, the most extreme cases that need, you know, that need to be fixed today or tomorrow, but so that our ABA procedures can be accessible to uh, a larger community of people. Um, so, so I think that's another great area. Uh, Dr. Josh Jessel, he was at Taba this past fall, and he he's he's really pivoted his practice as somebody who used to do a lot of you know kind of antiquated ABA procedures to somebody who's now uh, reflected in the mirror publicly in talks, and he's kind of changing. Uh, he he publishes quicker than anybody else I know, and so he's kind of putting out a lot of data in support of more compassionate approaches to ABA. The list could go on. Shall I keep going? I have a few more. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I'm just even starting there. That's that's so much that somebody could start looking into. And and I, and I appreciate the fact that you came on today to talk about this subject. I think it's something that needs to continue to be out there and discussed. And slowly, I think people need to immerse this into their own practice and understand, but it's it's doing it in a way that first you digest the information and you understand what it is that you're doing and why. Um, so I appreciate you coming on and, and continuing to open my eyes to this subject. Um, and hopefully we can get you back on to talk again on the podcast. I mean, it seems like there are so many branches that we can continue to talk through on this and and it is evolving. So um, hopefully we can get you back on another time, Dutty. Oh, I, I would love that. I know as soon as I end this, I'm going to think about like 10 more names and I'm going to feel very bad that I didn't mention them. But rather than <laughs> drag this out, I'll just say that there's a ton of really great thinkers and leaders in this field that you asked about who's leading the research. But I think what's another beautiful shift that's happening is as we've kind of started to worship at the altar of different types of evidence and different types of data that we are broadening our scope of who we look to as the authorities for these things. So I mentioned a bunch of people that are doing the peer-reviewed pubs, but I, I've actually learned so much more about trauma-informed approaches to ABA by um, listening to folks who have lived through trauma, by reading books like The Body Keeps the Score, where you kind of get to read about the minute-by-minute -minute experience of trauma. Um, and, and I can't stress this enough by listening to autistic individuals and neurodivergent individuals, who have, especially those who have experienced ABA services, because they 
I can, people can call you an expert for having letters after your name, but nobody is an expert in receiving ABA more than somebody who's received ABA services. So I, I really, uh, that sh I should have started with that answer and I'm gonna kick myself for that, but perhaps we can end on a bang <laughs> instead. Uh, absolutely, <laughs> that community partnership of stakeholders, practitioners, researchers. I mean, it's this ever evolving component of, you know, every stakeholder, family, school, everybody involved in the life of a recipient of care needs to be heard through this process. And I think that what you're describing there is is exactly what we need to do. So I appreciate it. And uh, and I look forward to a further discussion, Stiti. I do as well. And uh, I just want to say this is a wonderful podcast. I had a chance to listen to a, a few episodes since you invited me. And I'm so grateful to have uh, that, that you introduced me to it. Um, and it's been really great to get to know you uh, as a colleague and potential future collaborator as well. Well, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Autism Weekly. We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world. Autism Weekly is now found on all the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Autism Weekly is produced by ABS Kids. ABS Kids is proud to provide diagnostic assessments and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. You can learn more about ABS Kids and the Autism Weekly podcast by visiting ABS Kids dot com. Thanks for tuning in. See you again next week.